Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming. It's very nice to be here. I've been in Vienna since Tuesday. I live in Toronto and I came here via Paris. And so it's been very nice getting to know your city. Especially without the sun. <laughs> it's been a very introverted week. Which is... Uh, I think a good um, starting point for the workshop because what I'd like to talk about tonight and throughout the weekend is the internal practice of Ashtanga Yoga. You can take many workshops on the external geometry of yoga poses, where to put your hand in Trikonasana and how to put your ankle behind your ear. But sometimes what gets left out of contemporary asana practice is the role of the mind and the nature of reality as it's perceived through the mind-body process. And so the form that the workshop is going to take is tonight we're going to spend the night talking together. And if there's anything that you don't understand, please ask questions. This is a workshop. It's not a yoga class. So you're allowed to interrupt at any time. And if you feel shy because maybe your English is not precise, then we have two translators here. <laughs> One and a half. <laughs> uh, because I want to make sure that as we're moving together through this weekend, that if there's anything that is confusing, that you ask questions about it, whether that's the nature of a backbend or a term that I'm using, so that um, we can learn something together. And also that as I'm speaking, you don't just listen with your intellect. Sometimes when we hear philosophy, we take it in just intellectually, 
and then we compare it with all the other philosophy that we know already, and we figure out how it fits our worldview. And that's not a beginner's attitude. If you're hearing things just to reinforce your own worldview, then there's no way to learn anything. So I'm not appealing to your intellect. I'm appealing to your heart so that maybe there's something in this practice that will open you up so that you can wake up so that you can wake up from your habits and your addictions and find the place in you that is deeper than your opinion than your viewpoint than your perspective to find the place in you that's deeper than what you hold on to as me So are we in agreement? <laughs> Have you understood what I've said so far? <laughs> and tomorrow we will focus on asana practice and in the afternoon we will do some pranayama practice and some more philosophy. Um, tomorrow we will have lunch together uh, in silence so tomorrow I'd like you to bring your own lunch and we'll eat together in here in silence and then when you finish eating you can go for a walk spend some time outside and we'll do the same thing on Sunday so that we can concentrate and pay attention to what's happening in present experience Because a yoga asana is not a posture. You may think it's a yoga posture, but it's actually how you do your life. A yoga posture is learning how to do your life. How to be in life. And most of the time, we're not present. Like maybe right now. We're caught up in all of our habits, our ideas, and our imagination. And then there's a gap between reality and how we want things to be, or how we think they are. And this gap is called dukkha. Can we say this together? Dukkha. Dukkha. Yoga is freedom from dukkha, freedom from suffering, freedom from torment and anguish. And most of our problems are not in our body. Most of your problems are not in your knee joint or in your hamstrings. Most of your problems are in relationship. 
Most of your problems are in the mind, not in your shoulder joint, whether you can rotate internally or externally. That's also your mind. And so if our yoga practice does not include psychological awakening, then you can do great backbends, but your relationships will all fall apart. Because at some level the practice is not going deep enough in your mind, body, and culture. Does this make sense? So I thought that because we're in Vienna, is that where we are? (laughs) That I would begin uh, an approach to yoga rooted in Freud. In 1914, when Freud was still living in Vienna, he wrote a fabulous essay called Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through. And it was an essay that was written for doctors to convince them that the symptoms that arise in the body and in the mind are not something that we need to get rid of so quickly. That the symptoms that arise in the mind and the body and in our relationships are great signposts because they show us where there's imbalance and they have a purpose. And in this essay, he was trying to talk about ways that we can Instead of trying to eliminate our symptoms, like we do nowadays, you try and take a pill, or you go shopping, or you eat, to try and get rid of your symptoms, you change your hair, and you buy new clothes, and you hang out at Bipa, is that what it's called? (laughs) Like every corner in Vienna, there's a Bipa, (laughs) and it's full. And Freud is asking this question, which is, in what ways are our symptoms valuable? It seems a disgrace to be doing this in English, because I'm sure the German is much more poetic and accurate. The patient, he says, so that's all of us, the patient It's such a beautiful word, patient. If you're going to practice yoga, you have to develop patience. The patient, he says, must find the courage to direct his attention to the phenomena of his illness. His illness itself must no longer seem to him contemptible, but must become an enemy worthy of his mettle, a piece of his personality, which has solid ground for his existence and out of which things of value for his future life have to be derived. 
from the symptom there's value and that value becomes our potential in the future I'm going to suggest and this may be controversial but I'm going to suggest that Ashtanga Yoga or yoga in general has not actually arrived in Western culture. We have yoga studios popping up all over Vienna. But traditionally, yoga shows up where there is suffering. And yoga attends to where there are symptoms of imbalance. And so, in our yoga practice, we have to make sure that the practice is attending to all of the places in our life where there's imbalance. To all of the places in our culture where there's imbalance. To all of the places in our community where there is imbalance. I have Yes. Why would you say that yoga hasn't arrived in Western countries? It didn't arrive in the world yet. You know? But I would see more than this. If you sure, you could say that. Or do you think it arrived in a certain country already? Or a continent? I think it's, it's arrived in disguised ways. Yeah. But I think that yoga has the potential of changing the way that we relate to each other, the way we relate to our environment, the way we relate not only to this body, but the body of the earth. And so I think that any time there is awareness of the interconnection of everything, then there is yoga, whether it goes by that name or not. And I would say it arrived everywhere already. Huh? I would say it more positive. <laughs> I would think it arrived in every single place in the world already. Huh? Mm-hmm. Maybe not perfectly everywhere. Yeah. Sure. Has it arrived in your family? <laughs> so this is really the theme that I want to explore this weekend together, is how to actually practice yoga. How to practice Ashtanga yoga. Not your philosophy about Ashtanga Yoga. Not the way that yoga can fit into your lifestyle. I want to do this yoga over here in the studio, but I don't want it to affect my life. So that our practice can mature so that it leaves no part of our life untouched. 
Any other questions or comments before we continue? Maybe just one question about the symptoms you mm-hmm. just referred to. Uh, what about the case when you don't even feel any symptoms mm-hmm. arise? Mm-hmm. You don't, don't see the symptoms in yourself or in others? Mm-hmm. That's a symptom. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we avoid looking at symptoms because we don't want it to change the pattern of the ego. And I don't just mean the personal ego, but the cultural ego. Like, you don't want to see how many homeless people are living in Vienna. We don't want to look at that because that would actually make us have to change how we live our comfortable lifestyles. And so when you meet someone who has no home, do you look them in the eye? Is that person you? That's the yoga. To be committed to something other than your own egoic agenda. And with shopping and with um, accumulation through materialism, we can numb ourselves so that we don't see where there's imbalance. Do you hear that sound? Is that an ambulance? We've heard two of them already tonight. So there is somebody in that ambulance that's not just a siren. Mm -hmm. I realize that all the time you have been teaching and I also realize all those homeless people. Mm-hmm. But at one point, the question is, what can I do? I can look in the eyes of one out of ten people, yeah. maybe, mm-hmm. in order to stay alive. But if I don't, if I look at the at, at the eyes of all those people who are living on the street, mm-hmm. which become more and more because of the European problem mm-hmm. and the we have, then the question is, uh, does it help? Mm-hmm. It, for sure it doesn't help me mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there are things that can be done but mm-hmm. it's very little mm-hmm. and so you have there are some, some there is a reason why we don't look and why we don't why we try to, to not hear mm-hmm. what's the reason? Uh, for me personally mm-hmm. the reason is that um, it makes me very sad 
Mm -hmm. And I had to do here and there, I had to do something. Mm -hmm. It's not that that it's just so comfortable to not do it. It's just, um, I don't know how to change it. Yes. I have no idea how to change it. Yes. We can do many charity things here and there. Yes. We can do that. And we, I, I, I think we, we already do it. Mm-hmm. Maybe too little, but... Mm-hmm. But it's, I think to survive in, in this city or in other cities, you have mm-hmm. to look away. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we... I think... I'm not, I'm not sure if everybody's like this, but... Mm-hmm. It's not because we don't want to look, but we have to save ourselves a bit. Mm-hmm. What if that person is also yourself? Yeah, it might be. <laughs> but still. Because the interesting paradox is that the thing that makes us most happy is helping other people. When you serve somebody else, it brings great happiness. But I don't mean serving out of the ego, like trying to be empathetic, trying to be compassionate. But acting from the place of no separation, No separation. And so the place you're talking about of not knowing what to do, to really go into that place where you don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what I believe. And then to really look at that, Because that's an important place. That's the place of bearing witness. Where you can't really look at something if you already know the answer. That's not looking at something. Mark Twain says, when a pickpocket... Do you have pickpockets in Vienna? When a pickpocket walks down the street, all he sees are pockets. It's like bad yoga teaching. It's like if you know one adjustment in downward facing dog, you adjust everybody in that way because it's the only thing you can see. So I think what you're talking about is the beginning, really not knowing. And it stops you a little bit. And what I'm suggesting is don't look away so quickly. And then once we can let go of the fact that we think we even need to do something, then from the heart, a loving action will arise. Sometimes we look at the eight limbs of yoga and we say, first you practice yama, which are patterns of action, ways to take action in the world, 
and then you go through the limbs until finally samadhi. But that is not how the eight limbs work. They work the other way also. That when you realize samadhi, which means to integrate, integration, meaning everything is connected with everything else. When you realize that everything is connected with everything else, then the yamas just appear. Do you know what the yamas are? Maybe we should go through them together. So ashtanga means eight, tanga means a limb, like a spider or an octopus. If you say you practice ashtanga yoga, you have to practice ashtanga yoga. If you're just doing jump backs or lifting from Navasana into a handstand, that does not necessarily mean you're practicing Ashtanga Yoga. It's a facet of yoga. But it's important to have many limbs to the practice because whenever you make a system Because of the nature of a system, you have to leave something out. So the benefit of having eight limbs is that it tries to not leave too much out. And later in the Upanishads, Ashtanga Yoga gets expanded from eight limbs to fifteen limbs. So that each limb is pointing at different aspects of our life to help us wake up to yoga, to reality, to intimacy. And the first limb of Ashtanga Yoga, the first pillar of practice, is called Yama, which means restraint, the opposite of Ayama, like Pranayama. Yama means restraint. Restraint. You can translate it more loosely as ethics. Do you understand? To restrain yourself, to be modest, to refrain from something. Concentrating on yourself, no. To 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 um to hold back. <coughs> like if I don't go after this clock and I stay here, I'm restraining myself from grabbing the clock. Doesn't that take us a little bit close to repression? No. No. It's expression, not repression. It's an expression of interconnectedness. But for that to happen, the samadhi has to be first. The samadhi is first. 
It seems that, as you said, uh, the yama and yama are difficult to practice without the samadhi, almost impossible. Mm-hmm. One would have to start with a samadhi and allow the yama and yama to surface. Mm-hmm. We'll see. It's interesting. A lot of people wonder, why does Patanjali wait until the halfway through the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra to talk about Ashtanga Yoga, if that's the main path? And it's because he spends the whole first part of the book talking about karma. So maybe we should just look at that for a minute. Have you heard this word karma? Karma means, well, just first of all, forget everything you know about what you think (laughs) karma means. (laughs) Karma means that when you take an action, it has an effect. A lot of people think karma means just the effect, like fate or something. In Sanskrit, the word for fate is vipaka which is just the effect of an action. But karma means action, the intention in the action, and the effect of the action. In the Bhagavad Gita it says, wherever there is fire, there is smoke. If you plant a seed for spinach, you're going to get spinach. If you plant the seed for a pumpkin, you're going to get a pumpkin. If you plant the seeds of anger and greed and violence and apathy and competitiveness, then you're going to get a culture of greed and anger and envy, and competitiveness, and so on. If you plant the seed of a cucumber, you're not going to get a watermelon. If you plant the seed of kindness, and intimacy, and tenderness, and friendliness, and compassion, and equality, then you're going to create a culture of friendliness and compassion and equality internally and externally. So what kind of seeds are you planting? A lot of people come to psychotherapy. I also have a psychotherapy practice. And a lot of people come to psychotherapy and they talk about their addictions and then they don't want to do anything about it. They don't really want to change. Have you ever done this? Do you have any habits that you don't want to let go of? Yeah, exactly. Because we're only motivated to change when we understand karma. You're only motivated to let go of your addiction to anger when you see that it has an effect. 
If you don't see that your anger has an effect in the people around you and in yourself, there's no motivation to change. You may think, oh, it's bad. But if you don't really feel how it affects other people, then there's no reason why you should change. So before Patanjali even talks about ethics, he talks about karma. Because ethics don't make any sense. They just sound like the Ten Commandments. And ethics are not, the yamas are not rules. They're suggestions for a wise way to live. But there is no God that's going to punish you at Christmas time and not come down your chimney if you've been violent. You can't break a yama. And so instead of an almighty, all-powerful God that's going to put you in heaven or hell or give you a better rebirth, we have karma. That you see that your actions have an effect in your community, have an effect in your family. And then right away we're back to being present again. If you're not present, you're not going to see the effect of your actions. And then when you start to see that your actions have an effect, you realize that you have an ethical obligation to wake up. So that you don't keep looking behind you and seeing problems. Have you ever had this experience in your life where you've looked at back, like at your week, for example, and you say, oh my God, what have I done? Have you ever had this before? And so the yamas are not suggestions for what to do. They're suggestions for what not to do. <laughs> and there are five yamas. The first one is called ahimsa. Can we say this together? Ahimsa. Himsa comes from the root han, which is where in English we get the word harm. In Greek, if you take the word, the letter a, and you put it in front of a word, it turns the word into its opposite. But in Sanskrit, it's a little bit more subtle. It's, it, it sort of means not having the intention. So ahimsa means not having the intention to cause harm. In three different realms, body, speech, and mind. Most of us, we cause harm primarily through speech. Primarily through speech. How we talk to ourselves about ourselves. How do you talk to yourself? 
Is there a harm in how you talk to yourself? How can you speak kindly with other people if you can't even speak kindly to yourself? Sometimes it's called self-judgment. That's the first stage of the first limb. If you don't get any further in your yoga practice, that is a profound practice. Spend one month working on this. Spend one month just working on non-violence of speech. Or spend a month working on non-violence to the body. So that means two things. Not just the body, but the body politic, the body of the earth. Not causing harm to the body of the earth. That's your body. You're 80% water. How are you treating your water? How are you treating your water? That's your body. It's called a nadi. Nadi means a little river. And your body is filled with little rivers. How are we treating our rivers? What's the name of the river that runs? Danube. Is it clean? Can you go swimming and drink out of it? <laughs> How are the fish doing? <laughs> when we say in yoga that the river is flowing. Or when we say there's a cloud in the sky, it's not a metaphor. It's actually a cloud in the sky. When we talk about the breath as a wind, a vayu, pranavayu, that's not a metaphor. The breath is a wind. How are we treating the wind? How are we treating the air? How is the air in Vienna? That's your practice. When you pick up a piece of dust, that's the whole universe. When you wash your body, you're washing the whole universe. There's no separation. Your yoga practice on this mat is reality. It's everything happening in that particular moment. How are you engaging with it?
The second yama is called satya. Let's say it together. Satya. <laughs> satya means honesty. Usually, traditionally, it's translated as truth. But I don't like that word. Honesty. Honesty of body, speech, and mind. Are you honest with your body? Or do you walk around in self-image? Satya. The third yama is asteya. Asteya. One more time. Asteya. Which is usually translated as not stealing. And I'd like to translate it as not taking what's not given freely. What's not taking what's not given freely? What do you take? What are you taking that's not being offered? In the Jain tradition, for example, they would not pick an apple off a tree. They would wait until the apple falls. Or for example, if you have a a Theravadan monk come to your house and you have like a book on the table, they won't pick it up and look at it unless you offer it. Or do you steal things that are more subtle? Do you steal space, taking up too much space? Or do you steal time, wanting time to go faster or slower? Impatience. Impatience is a form of stealing time. When you're practicing asana, do you make some postures go faster and some slower? Do you ever take the time in navasana (laughs) to really enjoy the pose? Like sitting in a boat on the river. Don't answer. (laughs) the next yama is Brahma Charya Brahma Charya again Brahma Charya this means to live like Brahma Brahma is like creation whenever I think of Brahma I think of the engine of a motorcycle that goes brum, brum, like uh, to uh, build and to create and to rotate and to make. Brahmacharya means the wise use of energy, especially sexual energy. Maybe Victorian Vienna a hundred and however many years ago, in Freud's Vienna, 
looks different than this Vienna. And we can critique Freud for paying so much attention to the role of sexual energy in the unconscious. But maybe he was onto something. Maybe he was onto something. And not just him, but I mean, in Victorian Vienna, everybody was dealing with sexual energy, Klimt and Mahler and so on. The wise use of sexual energy in body, speech, and mind. That I think, although our culture may not look so sexually repressed, we still don't know how to work with sexual energy wisely. And it's interesting that over 2,000 years ago, right at the beginning of his method of practice, Patanjali says exactly the same thing as Freud. To pay attention to how you're using sexual energy. If you don't pay attention to it, which is what I think you were suggesting with repression, then you push it underground. Freud calls this the return of the repressed. I love that. It sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> Sometimes it's like a horror movie, actually. The return of the repressed. So how to be wise with our energy. We can talk more about that this weekend. And lastly, apadigraha. Together? Apadigraha. Graha basically means to grab. Apadigraha means um, not being greedy, not accumulating more than you need, not being greedy. I think there are all kinds of ways these days where we accumulate more than we need, like university. Go into a university where the people are doing their PhDs. You call it a PhD here? Doctor. Is the amount of knowledge that we're accumulating creating more compassion? Or is it creating more ego and more competitiveness? and experts. Knowledge as opposed to wisdom. Yoga is concerned with wisdom, not knowledge. That's why I said as you're listening, listen with your heart. Can you maybe learn something tonight? Can something I'm saying be something you can put to work in your life? Or is it just a new form of knowledge? We're living at a time where we don't need more philosophy. We don't need philosophy. 
And we don't need ideology. We need wisdom. And we need compassion. Not more knowledge. So yoga practice is a practice of renunciation. Letting go. Not accumulating more for me. But letting go. And the antidote, the antidote for apadigraha is generosity. Giving away. Giving away. There's nothing that you can hold on to anyways. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? If you look at any place in your life where there's suffering, there's something there that you're holding on to. Are you going to let it go? It takes a lot of energy to hold on. It takes a lot of energy to do this. And then you get to this posture. Some of you have this posture. Too much internet to get depression <laughs> try this if you take your hand and you make a fist squeeze as tight as you can oh and breathe in Paris I had two people die in the workshop <laughs> and stop breathing it's a good place to die keep holding okay now when I tell you to let go I don't want you to go like this I want you to just naturally just see how your hand lets go okay let go it doesn't move very much does it and this is exactly how the mind works that you keep holding on and holding on and then you don't even know how to let go anymore and then you have this posture <laughs> and when the mind has this posture it knows everything <laughs> about everything like if you ask someone who's very tight their opinion they'll give it to you real flexibility is when you can listen to other viewpoints not just your own perspective Can you listen to other viewpoints? 
or maybe one other viewpoint. <laughs> the opposite of my viewpoint. I know that viewpoint. So, isn't it interesting that the first limb of yoga, yama, is the limb of relationship, clarifying our relationships, internally and externally. (coughs) Relationship is the key to yoga. Relationship is the fuel for yoga. And we're all in relationship. Not just with humans, but with architecture, with rivers, with your enemies. Why do you need an enemy? Why do you need to have an enemy? You only need to have an enemy to hold on to your viewpoint. If you loosened up that viewpoint, there would be no enemy. Why do you need to go to war? Why is it that soldiers, when they go to war, talk about, especially in the beginning, how when they go to war, it actually fills their life with meaning and gives them a sense of purpose. Why is that? Why, when a country goes to war, does it give them a sense of pride and nationalism? Because when you create an enemy, you can hold on to your perspective and be safe in your perspective. As long as you don't look too closely. Look at the people in your life that you're not getting along with right now. You probably don't have to look too far. And notice how if you just start imagining them, your body goes like this. And then right away you have a viewpoint and a story about them. But according to yoga, the only reason why you need a story about them is to have a me. You create an object so there can be a subject. If you don't create an object, there doesn't have to be a me. And then you can have intimacy or yoga. But it's easier to go to war than to have intimacy. Because intimacy means we have to get along. And then you have to be flexible. But we don't want to be flexible because then we have to have intimacy. It's ridiculous. The thing that we most want is intimacy. And the thing we don't want is intimacy. 
I don't really want intimacy because then I can't have enemies. <laughs> Yoga is the intimacy of all things. That everything is intimately connected before the mind splits it up into categories. Yoga is not a verb. The verb is yuj, which means to unite or to yoke. But yoga is not a verb. You can't do yoga. Don't tell anybody this. You can't teach yoga. You can't even practice yoga. Because yoga means union. <coughs> You can't unite your mind and your body because they're already united. You can't unite anything. They're already united. You don't need to do any uniting. Stop working so hard. Huffing and puffing, jumping back, back bending, standing postures. Why are you doing all those standing postures? Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> In other words, everything is already interconnected, intimate, before the mind splits things up. Like, for example, if I have this yoga mat, Here's another one, here's another one. If you say, my yoga practice happens on this mat, and when I step off this mat, that's my life. That is a creation in the mind. Yoga asana is not separate than your life. But if you say, this is my yoga practice and this is my life, then that's how it's going to be. And then you miss out on the yoga. Yeah, um, you cannot look at yoga as union, that's clear. Everything is already interconnected and united. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, Patanjali seems to suggest that yoga should be understood as the yoga, as separation where we actually try to separate the Purusha from the Bhakti. Um, so should we think of yoga as separation? Since everything is already in this time. Hmm. You'll have to show me where he says that. Uh, in, 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 in one of the, in one of the sutras. Hmm. I, 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 can, I can dig it up. And yeah. He uses the term Dio. Yeah. Quite, uh, quite, quite a few times. And yoga means separation. Mm -hmm. For the philosopher, yes. But for the practitioner, when you see that purusha is pure awareness, which is svarupa shunya, he says, empty of any self-form, that experience is of complete 
interconnection. The feeling of samadhi is not separate. It's actually a feeling of connection with reality. From the outside, the language may sound like there's a separation that happens. But from the inside, the experience of stillness is an experience of openness where there's no me creating separation. And it feels as though everything is interconnected with everything else, which is the present moment without conceptual scaffolding. And then we start to need language in order to describe that experience. And then the language creates a system that sounds dualistic. But there is no separation. The only separation is the separation of um, you could say the separation of pure awareness and everything that's impermanent. But pure awareness doesn't see pure awareness. So there's no dualism. No dualism is implied. Uh, uh, yet uh, there are those categories of errors mm-hmm. staking the temper, the entire of the temper, the impure and sure. the pure, yeah. where there is implied a certain, um, I don't know, a certain wisdom that implies a rejection mm-hmm. of a whole mm-hmm. set of categories. Mm-hmm. And we take that rejection to mean the rejection of what is not real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where the Purusha can remain as it is, as pure awareness. Yet I read a rejection of something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm, you know. Sort of I'm not sure if I would use the language of rejection. Yeah. I think I would rather think of like when we chant, what do we chant? Shanka Chakrasi Dharinam Asi. Do you know what Asi is? What's Asi? No, it's Chakra. Asi. Chakra is a circle. Chakra is a concha. Asi is a sword. A sword. Or like the scalpel of a surgeon. A very sharp knife. Sometimes it's also called a vajra. A thunderbolt. So this is what enlightenment looks like in the mind. That the mind becomes so sharp that it can cut through things. It can cut. It can cut out where the mind is clinging. Or it's like, do any of you make films? Any filmmakers? It's like when the director says, cut! (laughs) Do you know that? At the end of a scene, it's like they're acting. The director says, cut! That's meditation practice. It's like, You're so distracted in your fiction 
And then you have to say, cut. And you cut it out and come back to the present moment. Or if you're in relationships that are violent, how to cut them off. Have you ever been in a relationship where you've broken up with someone, and but you still live together? And it takes like six months or five years to actually end it. Do any of you have relationships like this? Or... Like, the ending is like nine years. <laughs> Does that happen in Austria? <laughs> in Paris, it happens like this. Very sentimental. Too much Proust. <laughs> Where you're in a relationship and you're clinging and you're not cutting things off. You're not ending things. You're not present with how things are. You're living in a fantasy, virtual reality. That's asi, the sword, that's sharp. So you can see impermanence. So you can see what's impermanent, so you can see what's not me, so you can see what actually causes suffering. Patanjali says, I think what you're referring to, to see the difference between purity and impurity, to see the difference between what's permanent, what's impermanent, to see what's self and what's not self, to see what is suffering and what's not suffering. Sukha dukkha. What's sweet and what's not sweet? To not confuse what's happening as permanent. We end the workshop now. I'll go home. There's nothing left to talk about. It's so easy to talk about impermanence, right? It's so easy to, but actually to feel, to feel that everything that you invest in is impermanent. It's so easy to sit in a nice coffee house and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and say, everything is changing. (laughs) But then you lose your job. And then you're practicing fourth series and you find out you have cancer and you have to undergo chemotherapy 
and then you can't practice anymore. You're, pract- you're just getting second series, and then you get pregnant, and then you have a baby, and then you can't practice because you don't sleep. To see that your body is impermanent. I know we're not supposed to talk about that. If you go to Bipa, they're not going to tell you about impermanence and aging. They're going to tell you you can stop it. My partner, Michelle, has gray hair. And so she's not sure if she should dye it or keep it silver. And I love that it's gray. But whenever I go away, she always says, what do the women in that city do? (laughs) So I always lie. (laughs) When I was in Paris, I said, everyone's hair is gray here. So she said, what happens in What's that? And you're not following Satya. So, your relationships, right now, how many of you are parents? How many of you are children? <laughs> Your relationships are all impermanent. Your body is aging. Your relationships are aging. Everything that you can see with your eyes is impermanent. Everything. Everything that you can hear with your ears is impermanent. Everything that you taste is impermanent. Everything that you smell, everything that you feel, everything that you think, everything that you think is impermanent. It doesn't last. It's not permanent. Would you say it's also not real? It's real. How can it be real if it doesn't last? Because that's real. How can it be real if it changes every every second? Because that's reality. So reality is impermanent. And it's not just that everything is changing. It's that the apparatus that you use to witness impermanence is also impermanent. So what are you suggesting? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the dumb question. (laughs) What are you holding on to?
Where are you pretending? Where are you holding on? Because at some level, the mind realizes that it can't control physical reality. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried making something permanent? Someone tried making this building permanent, and they've done a pretty good job, but in 1,000 years it may not be here. We won't be here, unless you know something I don't know. (laughs) To open up in your heart, to open up to the fact that there is impermanence. And because the mind realizes that this reality here is changing, it creates something. There's a mechanism in the mind that does this amazing thing that maybe only humans can do, where we get bigger than the physical, which is called metaphysics, and we create a story about reality that makes it seem like it's permanent. And this is called religion, or a creation story, or God. Or we say, there is another life after death. Or we say, there is no life after death. Or we say, there is a permanent God that created all this. Or we create a story about me. And this is metaphysics. It's the fear of impermanence. That if I create a really good story, then I can start to feel safe because I can explain things and find permanence. But that is fear of impermanence. Yoga is not going to give you a new philosophy, a new religion, a new something to hang your coat on so that you can feel, ah, this is how things are. It's going to challenge where you're holding on, trying to create permanence. And the thing that we hold on to the most is what? Our sense of self. Yeah. It's called asmita. I, me, and mine. (laughs) I, me, and mine. The story of me. That's what I hold on to the most. The story of me. And I create amazing mythology so that I can feel like a me. The mythology we have about our lover, 
the mythology you have about your kids, the mythology you have about creation, or whatever. So you can create a story about me. So I can feel secure. And Indian philosophy responds to that and says, neti neti. Eti means this or that, and na means no. Na eti na eti. It sounds like naughty, naughty, naughty. No, 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 no. You think that that's yoga? Neti, 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 neti. You think you know who you are? No, 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 no. You think that person is going to save you? Neti, neti, neti. Naughty, naughty, naughty. No, no, no. And this is the practice of yoga. Flexibility. Because if everything is impermanent, and if we're all dying, then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What kind of art are you going to make your life into? How are you going to serve? What are you going to commit yourself to? And this is what we're going to figure out this weekend. Or you're going to get your money back. Right? When you say we're dying, you mean we're dying as a body? Don't you? <laughs> No. <laughs> I mean that every aspect of you is constantly dying. Except the part of your imagination that thinks it's not dying. <laughs> but that is actually dying as well. So you're suggesting that we're purely mortal beings? Uh, you mentioned uh, just before uh, particular awareness mm -hmm. that is sometimes referred to as the purusha, uh, the parampurusha. And uh, through the sutras and the parishad, it is mm -hmm. suggested that this parampurusha, so pure awareness, would be a factor that's omnipresent, omniscient, and uh, referred to as Hachitananda. And you're suggesting that this also dies. I'm suggesting it's not what you think it is, because it's not a thing. So we cannot live or we cannot die. It's no it. Patanjali says, uh, it is shunyata. It's empty of everything you think it is. Yeah, it is also us. Ah, but it's empty of that also. Clearly. 
As the mind wants to take purusha and make it into a thing. You've just done it. Yes, I know. Yet we are not separate from it, although it doesn't exist, except as ourselves. So it cannot die because it doesn't live. It cannot die because it hasn't been born. So uh, how can we die as it? We can die as body. So you're making a connection that you are Purusha? Uh, no, no, that the Purusha is everything, everyone. Are you going to die? Uh, me as the body is certainly going to die. Not you as the body. You as who you think you are. Well. As the ego, I'm going to die. As the body, as the, as the Purusha, I haven't been born, so how could I die? Uh-huh. It is who you are. If you identify with the ego, you're going to die. If you identify with the Purusha, mm-hmm. you cannot die. Mm-hmm. Nothing dies. What, what? what dies? The body dies, the mind dies. The body does not die. It disintegrates, it moves into a different uh, form. My toe does not die. It's gets eaten by a worm, and then the worm excretes in the garden, and then a flower grows, and then a bee comes and pollinates the flower, and then my son eats honey. But it dies as a particular uh, thing, your toe. It dies as an entity in your toe. It lives as honey, but it dies as your toe. But there is no such thing as honey. Honey is also not a thing. And neither is your toe. Aha. Uh-huh. Now we're getting somewhere. So when you say, I am going to die, or I am not going to die, or I am Purusha, or I am not Purusha, you're making a lot of things there. I'm going to poke at this a little bit all weekend. <laughs> um, Patanjali does not use a term, we talked about this at lunch yesterday, does not use the term jiva. That is the term that I think Purusha is getting mixed up with in the interpretation of Purusha as like this ongoing, untouchable, permanent thing, or soul. Not thing, not soul. What, whatever. Whenever we talk about it as permanent and unchanging, I think there's a tendency in the mind to reify it and turn it into an idol, however subtle. And I th- my interpretation of the Yoga Sutra is that Patanjali is not letting you do that. He's poking at that a little bit. To watch where we think that there is something that does not die. Or to flip into the opposite theology, that everything dies. He's not allowing you to stand in a viewpoint that creates opposites. 
which is, I think, what drives people crazy. <laughs> but we'll get to more of that. Are we still together? I don't know what's together. <laughs>